If you have your Bibles, uh, you can follow along. We're reading in Exodus chapter 30. If not, we have the uh, scripture up here on the screen for you. And uh, not your traditional Christmas passage, but uh, I think you'll uh, appreciate it as Pastor Matt connects the dots. But let's hear the word of the Lord. Then make another altar of acacia wood for burning incense. Make it 18 inches square and 36 inches high, with the horns at the corners carved from the same piece of wood as the altar itself. Overlay the top, sides, and horns of the altar with pure gold, and run a gold molding around the entire altar. Make two gold rings and attach them on the opposite sides of the altar below the gold molding to hold the carrying poles. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Place the incense altar just outside the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant in front of the Ark's cover, the place of atonement that covers the tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. I will meet you there. Every morning when Aaron maintains the lamps, he must bring burnt fragrant incense on the altar. And each evening when he lights the lamps, he must again burn incense in the Lord's presence. This must be done from generation to generation. Do not offer any unholy incense on this altar or any burnt offerings, grain offerings, or liquid offerings. Once a year, Aaron must purify the altar by smearing its horns with the blood from the offering made to purify the people from their sins. This will be a regular annual event from generation to generation, for this is the Lord's most holy altar. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. Um, if you're new, my name is Matt Ortiz, and if we haven't met yet, I would invite you to introduce yourself to me afterwards. I'd love to get to, get to know you. Um, to bring you up to speed, uh, we are in a, a, an Advent series leading up to Christmas. Now, I was the one who decided that we would look at Christmas through the lens of the tabernacle because I saw the connection between this, this uh, tent in the desert and the baby in the manger. I'm the one who planned it. I'm the one doing the sermon prep, and yet still, when I'm sitting in the chairs while somebody's reading the scripture, it just still seems so weird and out of place, you know? I mean, we got the Christmas trees over here, and we're talking about tents and stuff, and it's, it's a little weird to me, and I'm the one who planned it. So uh, I think that, uh, as Gary said, that you'll see how the dots get connected. Uh, Advent is all about... It's all about the anticipation of King Jesus on that first Christmas. That's what the Advent season is all about. And like I said, we're looking, we're at, this, we're looking at Christmas through the lens of the Old Testament tabernacle. Um, and, and maybe you, you do wonder, maybe that if, you've been, if this is your first time uh, here, you're wondering what does this tent in the desert have to do with the baby and the manger? Well, they both are proclaiming forth the redemptive plan of God. They show us how God saves his people back in the days of Exodus and today. And so it's incredibly relevant to us here and now today for your life and what you're facing. 
And here's, here's what I know. Here's what I've observed, and I think all of you have as well. Just like the Israelites in Exodus, we too are a forgetful people. It is so easy for us to be distracted and, and forget God and, and his salvation. It's so easy to be distracted and, and forget who Jesus is and all that he's done and all that he's doing in, in your life right now. Advent is a season to be especially deliberate in remembering and celebrating the first arrival of Jesus and then also longing for his return. Look again how the apostle uh, John describes the arrival of Jesus. He says, the word God became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. John uses that word tabernacle deliberately, and he's drawing a parallel between Jesus and the tabernacle. This is why during this Advent season, we're looking at Christmas through the lens of the tabernacle in Exodus. And so there are several things, a couple things I want to do this morning. First, I want to do a quick review. And then second, we'll look at another element in the tabernacle called the altar of incense. And so let's do a review of the tabernacle. What is it? all about. Well, if you have been in church for any amount of time, you read the book of Exodus, you know that uh, the story of God, how he delivered his people out of slavery to the Egyptians and was leading them to the wil- through the wilderness to the promised land. And during their journey, the Lord sets up a tent of his own where he dwells with his people so his people can be with him and worship him. Now, God spends one-third of the book of Exodus giving detailed instructions about the design and the construction of this tabernacle. Why did he get so specific and detailed? Well, he wasn't just giving Moses a bunch of of busy work to do. What he's doing is, is, is kind of bringing in all of this symbolism that illustrates the reverse of the curse. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God created everything. He created the sun. He created the moon. He created the the stars. I mean, he created the mountains and the trees and the lions and the tigers and the bears and all of this good fruit to eat. And then he created humankind, Adam and Eve, his most prized creation. The only creation made in his image. And God says to Adam, he says to humankind, here is everything that I've created. Look at it. Behold, I created it for you, for you to have, for you to enjoy, for you to take care of. I remember when we found out that uh, Shannon was first pregnant with my son, Dakota. And we had a tiny little apartment, and we turned part of the closet into a makeshift bedroom. And we painted, and, and we set up a changing table, and we got a crib, a bassinet, and a rocking chair, and a diaper genie, and diapers, and more diapers, and more diapers. And we spent a lot of time decorating the, the walls with Noah's Ark theme. 
as if God bringing a catastrophic worldwide flood was cute. We weren't really thinking about that. We were, there's animals in a boat. We did all of this for Dakota before he was born. Everything was for him. Everything, in anticipation. You know, couples, when they get, get married, uh, you, I mean, they usually say something, when they exchange rings, say something like, with this ring I marry you, and all my earthly goods I devote to you. In other words, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have is for you. And then your kids show up and it all becomes theirs. In Genesis, God is creating the heavens and the earth. He got the sky ready. He filled the land with animals. He planted trees and flowers. And then he created us. And he said, everything I created is for you. And we read that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And he says, not only is my creation yours, but I am yours. And I give you the fullness of my presence and who I am. God gives them just one prohibition. Just one. It was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could do anything else that they wanted. And what did humankind do? We decided to be our own God and decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. And we disobeyed God. And this is how we lost both paradise and God's presence. So is that it? Do we just mess up our one chance? Did God write us off forever? Or is there a way back to the garden? Is there a way back to God? Well, God tells us through the tabernacle that there is a way back to God. Not by us being good, but by God and his grace. And it is his grace that displays his glory. You know, in the last chapter of Exodus, uh, verse 33, Moses had, had finished the tabernacle, and it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then later in the New Testament, look again at what John says um, when he says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when God the Son, Jesus, tabernacled among us, we beheld God's glory. That glory means weight. This is the full weight of who God is. God is righteous and he is just, so he had to demand payment for our destructive sin. He is also a God of mercy and grace, and so he became that payment for sin for us. This is our God, putting his glory on display for all to see. This is our God, who at great cost to himself, through his sacrifice for our sin on the cross, was willing to love and forgive and offer grace. This is the God of glory that we see in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is all about God and his glory saying, I want you back. I want you back, and I am going to make a way. We broke our relationship off with God through our sin. 
but God provides a way back. That's what the tabernacle is all about. Now, for the rest of our time together, I want us to look at another element of the tabernacle, the altar of incense. And it may have looked something like this. I think we have a picture of it here. We're going to make three observations about this altar of incense. We're going to look at the placement of the altar, the purpose of the altar, and the power of the altar. Okay? So first, the placement of the altar of incense. In our text that Gary read for us at the beginning, it says in verse 6, place the incense altar just outside the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. So this altar of incense was positioned right outside, right in front of the veil. On the other side of the veil was the most holy place containing the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. And if we are going to experience the fullness of God's presence, we cannot bypass the altar of incense. Remember, when, as we talked about in previous weeks, when you, when you entered the courtyard, the first thing that you'd see was this bronze altar that you see on the, on the right there where sacrifices were made. It shows that if we're going to enter God's presence at all, our sin must be dealt with. The Bible tells us that, that the wages of sin is death, and how is that wage uh, uh, for sin paid? One of two ways. Either we have to die or another has to die in our place. And this bronze altar right here shows us our need for a substitute. It points to the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross in our place. That's why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. And then when you move closer to the presence of God. The next thing you see is this bronze basin, the place for, for a ceremonial washing representing our need to be cleansed of sin. And then you move closer to the presence of God and you come to the tent. And that first large section there that you see on the right is called the holy place. And inside on the left, inside of the holy place, on the left is the lampstand. And it represents our need for, for life-giving light in a dark world of dark hearts. And it's the light of the gospel that gives us life. And on the other side of the room, there's this table of bread representing God's presence with us and our need for him to provide for us, not just physical provision, but also spiritual provision. Jesus is the bread of life, and man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and that word became flesh to be present with us. And then finally, last stop, you come to the altar of incense, right in front of the veil, the last station before the most holy place. And the placement here reminds us that you cannot pass by the altar of incense. You cannot bypass the altar of incense to experience the glory and presence of God. I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. But this leads to our next logical question, which is, what is the purpose of the altar of incense? What does it symbolize? Well, there's a bunch of uh, scriptures I could read, but let me read two for you. 
In Psalm 141, David says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then go all the way to the end of the the scriptures. In Revelation chapter 8, John has this mind-blowing, magnificent vision of the worship that is taking place in the throne room of God. And he says, an angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer or an incense burner. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. The smoke of the incense represents the prayers of God's people. The smoke of the incense represents your prayers. When Jesus said, it is finished and the veil tore from top to bottom, we are given access to the presence of God. But the only way we can experience the fullness of what Jesus accomplished for us is through prayer. Now, I know there are times when you can feel like there is still a veil separating you from God. And it could be for several reasons. One might be we simply don't take advantage of the access that we've been given. We don't seek his face in active, regular prayer, talking with God. We don't draw near to the throne of God's grace with the freedom that we have been given. And we take it for granted. That might be one reason. Others of you might legitimately, sincerely be saying, you know what, but I do pray. And I still feel like God is far off. I still feel like God is not hearing what I am saying. Well, I think there's something else here about the altar of incense that I think can be encouraging to you. Look at verse 7. It says, every morning when Aaron maintains the lamps, he must burn fragrant incense on the altar. And each evening when he lights the lamps, he must again burn incense in the Lord's presence. This must be done from generation to generation. So God commands the incense to be burned on the altar continually. Every morning, every twilight. Keep it burning. A regular offering before the Lord. So what's God saying to us? He is saying, pray without ceasing. (laughs) Right away when I hear that, that command... Um, it can feel burdensome. Like, like something that you could never really obey. But I think there's another way to look at it. When God commands, keep the incense burning, when he makes the command, pray without ceasing, what he is saying to you is that there is not a single moment of the day or a single moment in the night when I don't want to meet with you. There's not a single moment, day or night, when I don't want to hear from you. I am always here for you, and I'm always ready to welcome you in. I mean, what if God told us, you know what, give it a rest already. Don't talk to me so much. 
pace yourself. I need a break. See, when God says, pray without ceasing, he is telling you something about who he is. He's telling you something about his love for you, his delight in you. Through prayer, God is offering to you all of him, all of the time. You know, maybe you've been praying and you're asking God for something, you're begging God for something, and, and maybe you're even praying uh, what you know would be consistent with his will according to scriptures. And you prayed once. I don't know, maybe you prayed five times. And you just don't know if you have the heart to pray persistently. Maybe you think, you know what, if the answer is no, then what's the point? Look at the prayer of Jesus in the garden right before the crucifixion. If anyone, if anyone could have just prayed once and God does it, it would have been Jesus, right? But he persisted, we see, he persisted in his prayers. And he prayed this. He said, my father, this is his request, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let the cross, let your wrath, let your justice for the sin of the world pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus lifts this request to God. And what does God say? He says, no. <laughs> that never dawned on me before. That God, God the Father's answer to Jesus was no. But through that no, he accomplished the greatest thing in human history. Through that no, he accomplished redemption. He accomplished our salvation. Through that no, he provides the power to renew you, to renew your heart, to renew your life, to renew your neighborhoods, to renew the world. Do you see the freedom we have in persistent prayer? Either you keep asking and God does what you're asking him for, or as you persist in your prayers, you begin to see what God sees. You begin to desire what God desires so that ultimately your prayers are, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now look, you may be praying for something right now. You might be begging God for, for something right now, and, and, and you're and you're. You're wondering how God's going to answer. Well, the truth is, there's a good chance that it's no. But if he says no to you, it is always for the purpose of accomplishing something greater than you could ever imagine. It is always greater than if he had said yes. I mean, when Jesus prayed, Father, would you take this cup from me? What if the Father answered yes? Where would that leave us? Well, here's, that leads us to our last section here, the power of the altar of incense. What is it that make our prayers work? What is it that make our prayers effective? There's one last command God gives concerning the altar of incense in verse 10. It says, once a year, 
Aaron must purify the altar by smearing its horns with the blood from the offering made to purify the people from their sin. This will be a regular annual event from generation to generation, for this is the Lord's most holy altar. So God commands that once a year, the blood of the sin offering, that, that happened just outside in the, in the courtyard for the sacrifice of sin, right? That the blood of the atonement be put on the horns of the altar of incense. And what this is showing us is that what makes our prayers powerful and what makes our prayers effective is not our persistence or the quality of our prayers in and of themselves. It's not because of how obedient we have been. It's not based on whether we've been naughty or nice. God is not Santa Claus. This shows us that if our prayers are powerful and if our prayers are effective and if we experience the presence of God, it's because the blood of Jesus is powerful and effective. He is the only one who is righteous enough to approach the Father, but then he gives us his righteousness when he died for our sin. This is why we're told in the scripture that, that we don't pray in our own name. We pray in Jesus' name. Jesus said in John 14, again, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in his Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He will do what? Either he will give you what you are asking for or he will accomplish something greater than you imagined by changing your heart to desire what he desires and to see what he sees so that he can mold you into the likeness of what his name represents. Now I want you to imagine this Old Testament priest burning that incense up against the veil. Just on the other side of the veil is the Holy of Holies. And he can't go in. I mean, once a year, but on a daily basis, he cannot go in. He cannot pass through. But what does pass through? The smoke of the incense passes through. You know, we can and we do experience the presence of God in this life, in this world, in a very real way. But when our days are finally up, we're told that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Faith will become sight, as the Apostle Paul says. We will pass through to be with God in his glorious throne room, but not yet. So in the meantime, what does pass through to God in his glorious throne? throne room. The smoke of the incense. Your prayers. Look at Revelation 8 again. It says, an angel came and stood at the altar with the golden incense burner, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. You know what this means for you and your prayers? It means that every prayer you ever prayed in Jesus' name 
has made it into God's heavenly throne room. It means that your prayers rise like incense, and it is a pleasing aroma to God. And not only that, Hebrews 7 tells us that our high priest, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, do you know what this means for you? It means that your prayers don't end when you say amen. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're saying, God, this is as far as I'm able to go right now. I'm still physically on earth, but I am praying to you in Jesus' name because I know that he can take my prayers all the way through. And because I know that, you, that right now he is sitting at your right hand and ever lives to plead for me. Now, I don't know when it was that you last prayed. It might have been this morning or last month or maybe it's been years. But whenever you last prayed in Jesus' name, you need to know it made your prayers made it all the way to the throne room of God. Not one of your prayers has ever been wasted. And Jesus is interceding for you right now. He is praying for you right now. And some of the things I imagine Jesus uh, praying as he intercedes, I, I imagine, Father, would you help them get this? I went to the cross. The veil's been torn. They have full access to you. And you will meet them in prayer. And they will be able to experience you in prayer. Father, would you help them get this? And he prays for you as you pray. You know, I know I, and there are times when prayer can feel lonely because when life finally drives you to prayer, sometimes it's because you have nothing left and no one left. This shows you that you never pray alone. When you are praying Jesus is praying with you. And when you say amen and your prayers have ended, Jesus continues to pray for you. Praying, Father, they are praying your will. Will you do it? Or, or Father, they do not yet see as we see. Help them to see. Help them desire what we desire. Paul tells us that all the promises of God Find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God wants you to know him. God wants you to experience his glory and his presence. So he invites you to talk with him. He invites you to pray. So let's be a church that uses the freedom that we have been given through Christ. And let us be a church that experiences God and glorifies God through prayer. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?